0: Well, hey, this morning uh, we're going to wrap up this series that we've been in all summer called "Tell Me a Story." And uh, before we do that, though, I want to give you a really quick update on where we're at in all of our property stuff. We haven't talked about that for a few weeks, and I thought it'd be good this morning to just give you a really quick update. Um, concerning the the sale of this property uh, here the everything is moving forward this past week the surgical center had a neighborhood meeting uh, that where they invited all of the neighbors to come and kind of laid out the plan of what they would be doing with the property once they took possession of it and gave an opportunity for anybody who had any concerns to be able to voice those and that meeting went really really well And so thank you for praying for that. The next step is this week, they will be presenting a formal application and plan to the zoning uh, commission. And so there was somebody from uh, the zoning committee or or commission here at that meeting. And so they don't anticipate any issues there. And then from there, it will go before the city council uh, for a vote. So for all of that to take place, we're looking at somewhere the end of October, 1st of November. And so the plan right now is, uh, to sign the contract and close on this property uh, November 1. And so that's, that's where that is. As far as the purchase of the theaters, again, that's moving forward. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots of good conversations uh, with the, the folks who own the theater. And uh, we, we are scheduled this week. We should be signing the contract with them, which means that we will be set to close on that property December the 1st. And so we're excited about that. So yeah, that's worth clapping for. Uh, So thank you for your continued prayers. And we talked last week and a couple of weeks ago about consistent, persistent prayers. Continue to do that. Uh, There are lots of things that still need to be prayed over, and we need to pray for that process. We're excited for what God is going to do, and we're excited for what God is doing right now. And uh, by the way, I I just want to say this. Uh, You guys know that Last month, uh, thanks to your faithful giving and thanks to some creative financing by the finance team and the board, we were able to pay off our mortgage, and so we're debt-free. And I know a number of you, that was a priority for you. In fact, many of you above uh, and beyond your regular tithes and offerings gave on a weekly or monthly basis towards our debt reduction. And so thank you for doing that. Uh, I want to ask you to consider this, if, if, if you would— um, We're debt free now. However, when we acquire the new building, there's gonna be some cost associated with remodeling that building and getting it ready. So for those of you who were giving towards debt reduction, we just ask if you would consider to continue giving in that way, but not now towards debt reduction, but towards our building fund. And so we've changed the titles of that on our giving app. And anybody who would uh, just say, hey, I'd like to do that. I'd like to begin now uh, so we can begin saving money for all of the things that we're gonna have to do once we get in the in the new building that would be awesome and we'd love to have you do that and so that's a uh, it, it's not a mandate it's an invitation uh to be able to do that and be blessed by doing it so uh we are going to wrap up our series as i said this morning on the parables of jesus and this morning i want to look at uh which is One of uh, which is probably the the most famous of all of the parables or the stories that Jesus told. And uh, this is actually a series of three stories. Jesus tells three stories. So if you came here this morning, this is bonus Sunday. You get not just one, not just two, but three, three stories for the price of one. And we might even throw in a set of Ginsu knives for that too. So uh, I just dated myself. A bunch of you are like, I have no idea what that is. But anyway, this is bonus Sunday. Jesus tells three stories. And uh, the reason that I saved these particular stories for the last Sunday of this series is because I I think that there's probably no better stories that Jesus told that better describe what the kingdom of God is all about than these stories right here. If you remember, we've talked about this on a, a few different occasions, but um, the type of story that Jesus told is called parables, or called parables, and a parable is a specific type of story where uh, the teller of the parable would use kind of common, everyday things, stuff that people would be familiar with. And, and he would tell these stories or she would tell these stories with common everyday things. But the goal was to provide or point to some sort of deeper reality, a deeper meaning. And so a parable, it's kind of like an onion. There's layers to it. And as you peel back the layers of the story, there's more truth that is revealed. And in Jesus' case, uh, the reason that he told parables is because he, he really is trying to help the hearers of his stories understand what the kingdom of God is all about. And so in these stories that we're going to look at this morning, it's interesting because we don't see Jesus do this any other place that I'm aware of, but he is so adamant. It's like there is this particular lesson that is so important that I'm not just going to hit you one way. I'm going to hit you three different ways. He tells three stories right in a row that all are aimed at the same target. Now there are other times where Jesus will tell multiple uh, stories in a row, but each of them had individual lessons. This is the, Only place that I can find where Jesus is like, I'm just going to keep hitting it and hitting it and hitting it because I want to make sure that you don't miss it. Now, if you got your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 15. And uh, before we jump into the stories themselves, as always, I think it's really important for us to understand the setting and the context, which, by the way, Uh, This is true. Whenever you open up your Bibles and whenever you read scripture, it's in order to fully understand how it applies to your life personally, it's important to understand the setting and the context. In other words, we've got to understand who was Jesus' original audience? What was the particular setting in which uh, the scripture uh, is, is pointing towards? What are the issues that are being addressed? How does it apply to the original audience? All important things. And in this case, uh, Luke in, in uh, chapter 15, the first couple of verses, Luke gives us much of that information. Let's just take a look at it real quick together. Uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Luke says this Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered or gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay. So here's the scene. And this has become a pretty familiar scene as we've looked at many of these stories is that there are, there's a crowd that is gathered around Jesus. Pretty typical. Jesus has continued to attract people. And so there's, there's a crowd around Jesus. But in this crowd, there are a couple of groups of people that Luke wants to make sure that we're aware. These guys are who are in this crowd. Uh, in one group, he says, you've got sinners and tax collectors. And in another group, you've got uh, the teachers of the law, scribes, and you've got the Pharisees. Now, this is an interesting conglomeration of people in this crowd. Because in the Jewish culture, you couldn't have had more polar opposites, groups of people. I mean, you've got the best of the best in their culture, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And you've got the worst of the worst, sinners and tax collectors, now, now, when Luke uses the word sinner here, he's not just talking about people who have sinned in their past because that would have included everybody in the group except for Jesus, right? Because the Bible says that uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's only one individual who ever set foot on this planet that never sinned, and that was Jesus. So that would have included everybody. So he's not talking about people who have uh, just you know, sinned in the past. What he's talking about here, this term sinner's, refers to kind of um, in-your-face sinners, the worst of the worst kind of sinners. They were, they were Jewish by race, but not by practice. They, 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 they knew the religious law, but they chose to ignore it. And so these were just kind of, you know, again, in your face, kind of out there sinners. They're like, you know, I am what I am, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I don't really care what all of you religious, stuffy types think about it. Immoral people who were living contrary to God's law. You know, prostitutes, adulterers, thieves, drunkards, sinners, and, and in the first century, in the, in the Jewish order, social order, all of, of those kinds of people would have been considered kind of bottom of the barrel people. People that, that good, religious, upright, maybe uptight people would not have anything at all to do with. They wouldn't be caught dead with those people. Um... And and below sinners, there was a special class of sinners uh, called tax collectors. They were a special kind of, I'm not even going to ask if we have any IRS people here. I'm sorry, you know. But uh, in, in Jesus' day, t- tax collectors were like some of the most hated people on the planet. And, 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 and in all fairness, even for, for those of us who may not, you know, feel like our tax system is fair and we may not love um, the IRS or anything like that, it, it, even though we may not uh, like it or we may not think that it's, it's fair, at least it's a consistent type of unfairness. I mean, it's consistent. There are specific um, laws that are written, and we, we know that if you fall in this tax bracket, then you know, you're going to pay this tax. That was not the way that it was in, in uh, first century uh, Israel. In, in first century Israel, there was no standard. The rule was pretty simple for a tax collector. Get as much as you can get. get I mean, just get as much as you can get. And we, you got to remember that uh, in this period of history... Israel was under the control of Rome, and Rome was in a particular business, a very specialized business. Their business was conquer the world, and that's an expensive business. And so they had come up with really what was kind of an ingenious way of financing their business. What they had done was they created this system where tax collection was a wonderful business opportunity for anybody who wanted to take advantage of it. Uh, what, what they would do is, is you could actually invest in being a tax collector by, um, by bidding on specific areas. So for instance, if I had decided that I wanted to be the tax collector for the city of Lincoln, what I could do is I could go to Rome and say, you know what, I think I could get A million dollars worth of tax revenue out of lincoln and if i won that bid then what would happen is i pay rome the million dollars but then whatever i get above and beyond that is mine to keep and and so you can imagine that there was um some really unscrupulous practices that developed out of that which were all backed by not only the authority but the military might of rome Every tax collector had access to their own little group of Roman soldiers who would back them. And if you, know, if you didn't pay what you were supposed to pay, then they could come and they could take your, your, your land, your house, your property, your possessions. And it was all backed by the military might of, of Rome. Whatever the tax collector said you had to pay, you had to pay. And so you can imagine, all of the people hated the tax collectors for that. They were considered to be traitors to their own people. They were willing to sell out their own people simply to line their own pockets. And of all of the issues that the religious leaders had with Jesus, and we've talked about a number of them over the past couple of weeks, You know, the religious leaders didn't like the fact that Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. They didn't like the fact that uh, Jesus' followers didn't follow all of the ceremonial washings. But, but probably the biggest issue out of all of them was that the, that the Pharisees didn't like the fact that Jesus um, hung out with people that they didn't think a good Jewish rabbi should hang out with. That was their complaint. This man welcomes sinners. Sinners. The original word that is used here for, for welcomes is a word that has two meanings. The first meaning is that it means to welcome favorably. In other words, um, not in hesitation, not out of obligation, but on purpose, excitingly, because it's something that you want to do. And the second meaning is um, to look forward to to, um, to, to look forward to, to anticipate, to wait for with anticipation and so what these religious leaders hated most about Jesus was not simply that he tolerated sinful people. That, that, they might have let that one go. But what they hated was, is that Jesus actually looked forward to. He, he, he looked for the opportunity. He, he longed with anticipation to hang out with sinful people. He waited for them. I, I think that's important, To understand that, uh, first, Jesus was patient. He waited for them. I mean, come on, he, he probably had to wait for these people to overcome their suspicions about him. Because they knew he was a rabbi, right? And, and they had plenty of history with Jewish rabbis. They, they had experienced their fair share of, of finger wagging. And they, they had experienced being looked down upon by the religious folks. They had experienced being made a public example of, you know, you better be careful the way you live your life or you're going to wind up like those people over there. They had experienced all of that from the religious community. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he's got some work to do. He has to, he has to put in the work. He was patient. He anxiously waited for them to come to believe that, hey, this, this guy just might be legit. This guy, um, you know, they're, they're, he, he, we, may, we may not just be a project to this guy. I mean, this guy may actually care about us. And as a result, these sinful people, <laughs> they just love being around Jesus. Luke says this, I, I, I didn't catch this before until this last week when I read this. It says, they all gathered around Jesus, all of them, one, one. one. Wasn't too I mean, it was just sinful people loved to be around Jesus. They all gathered around Jesus. And I I think it would be a mistake for us to miss this, to miss the fact that here is a group of people who have been rejected by the church, looked down on by the church, hurt by the church, and yet they absolutely loved being around Jesus. You know, over the years I've run into a number of people who, for various reasons, you know, don't, don't want to have anything to do with religion. Don't, don't, they don't want to have anything to do with the church, have a problem with the church, have a real problem with some of the people of the church who call themselves Christians. But it's interesting because I have never once met one person who has a problem with Jesus. You know, I just don't like that Jesus. Never met somebody like, even people who don't believe that Jesus was God don't have a problem with Jesus. They don't, at least they don't have a problem with the philosophy of Jesus. I mean, who would have a problem with, uh, it's probably a good idea to love your neighbors. Or, or take care of the poor. Have, have compassion on the fatherless and, and the, the widows. Nobody has a problem with that. The truth is, people don't have a problem with Jesus, but they do have a problem with people who claim to follow Jesus and don't act like Jesus. That's what people have a problem with. These these sinners and tax collectors loved hanging out with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus loved hanging out with them. He couldn't wait to be with him. And the Pharisees hated him for it. And so Luke says that, that here's Jesus showing compassion, loving people who need to experience compassion and to be loved And while that's going on, the religious folks, the church people, are over here grumbling. Jesus is showing compassion. The church people are grumbling. I probably better not touch that one, right? Man, I can't help it. Can I touch it a little bit? Thank you, Esther. Because Laura, my wife's on the front row the front row going I'm gonna touch it. I'm going to touch it a little bit, all right? In all my years as a pastor, I've certainly heard my fair share of grumbling that comes from the mouths of church people. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but church people can be the most grumblingest group of people on the planet sometimes. Um, in fact, when I was a kid, some of you guys might remember this. We actually had a song about it. You remember in Sunday school when we used to sing that song about grumbling people? They grumble on Monday, grumble on Tuesday, grumble on Wednesday too. Grumble on Thursday, grumble on Friday, grumble the whole week through. We used to sing that song. It's pretty bad when you got a song about it, you know? And so we used to sing that song, but, um, you know, of course, I know that um, that's other places, and nobody around here would ever grumble. I mean, that's not a connecting point thing, right? You guys probably didn't even know that song existed. But, but some churches, other churches, um, sometimes have people that grumble. And down through the years, I've heard all kinds of different grumbling. You know, I've heard grumbling about uh, pews versus chairs, and I've heard grumbling about choirs versus worship bands. And I've heard grumbling about suits versus jeans. You know, all um, eternity-shaping stuff. You know, grumbling about why don't we do that anymore? I used to like it when we do that. We don't do that anymore, and I don't like it. Just grumble, 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 grumble. Grumble. Laura's looking at me like, you said you were just going to touch it a little bit. That's why I'm not even looking over here. It's interesting because um, there's one complaint that I've never heard yet. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. Um, but but I, 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 I've, I've never yet, you know, I'm just waiting for somebody to grab me right before I get up to preach. Because apparently that in the church, that's when you're supposed to complain to the pastor, right before they get up to proclaim the word of God is I'm waiting for somebody to grab me right before I get on the platform, aggravated, irritated, and say, Pastor, I'm concerned. I'm, I'm concerned, not about the style of music, not because you don't wear a tie, although you'd look really good in a tie, I think. <laughs> I, I'm waiting for somebody to grab me and say, Pastor, I'm concerned because there are people all around us who are hurting and are broken and all they need is somebody to tell them about Jesus and I'm concerned because I don't think we're doing enough to do that. Why aren't we reaching more people for Jesus? Why don't we see more people surrendering and giving their lives to Jesus? I haven't heard that one yet. That would be a good complaint, don't you think? Listen, I've been involved in the church for over 50 years, and so I not only know the church and know the church people, I are the church and the church people. But the sad reality is that most of the stuff that good, well-meaning church folks complain about, the sad reality is that even if we got what we wanted, it would not impact One single soul for the kingdom. All it would do is meet our own personal preference. And one of the things that we have to be careful of as a church is that we can't take, we are called to do spiritual things. World-changing things. And one of the dangers we have to look out for is we're called to do spiritual things. We cannot turn the spiritual into something that's simply about us. It has to be Jesus' mission. And the the sad thing is for these Pharisees, they are so caught up in their own stuff. You know, Jesus, why aren't you doing what we do? We want you to follow our rules. We want you to do it like us. And in the process, they have lost any heart that they had ever had for lost people. And what's most sad is they didn't even know it. The reality is they thought they were doing what was right and what was righteous To the point that here they are, they're grumbling and complaining about the fact that rather than catering to them, instead Jesus has the audacity to show love and compassion to people who need to experience his love and compassion. And the sadder truth is, what they're really mad about is, is that Jesus is doing what they should have been doing. And so Jesus hears them grumbling. You know what I love about Jesus is he'll deal with the issue at hand. And so Jesus, he hears them grumbling. And so he does what, you know, many of us would, you know, want to just like slap some sense into them. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus cares for the Pharisees. And so Jesus does what we've seen him do over and over and over again. He turns to them. He's like, hey guys, gather around me. I I want to tell you a story actually three stories. And, and story one, here it is. He says, we're not going to read it. You can go back and look at Luke chapter 15. I encourage you to do that. Make, just make sure I'm telling you the truth. But, but, but Jesus says in, in the first story, he says, you know, suppose that um, there's a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of these sheep wanders off. What do you think that shepherd would do? Jesus asked them. Wouldn't that shepherd leave the 99 perfectly good sheep and go out and search? I mean, high and low looking for this one lost sheep until he finds it. And then once he finds it, Jesus says, what do you think that shepherd would do then? Don't you think he would pick up that sheep and throw it over his shoulders? I mean, get it close to him and just grab this sheep so he couldn't get lost again and just hang on to this sheep and, and, and carry it home. And then once he got home, don't you think he would like call all, the, all of his friends and all of his family and all of his neighbors and say, hey guys, come on over. We're going to have a party because I had lost this sheep, but now it's found. I found it and it's not lost anymore. I think that deserves a party and then Jesus looks them square in the eyes and he says I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent in other words what Jesus is saying is guys it ain't about you once once you're in the kingdom it ain't about you anymore it's about others who need to be in the kingdom. And, and, and they're just looking back at him. I just imagine blank stares, you know. And, and so Jesus goes on. He says, okay, what, what about this? I, imagine that a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. In those days, when, whenever a, a woman would get married, she would be given some coins as part of her dowry. And so uh, this was not only insurance for her in case, to, uh, in case of an emergency or something like that. It was special. It was dear. It was kind of like a wedding ring. It, it had way more value than simply the value of the coins, And so Jesus says, just imagine that she loses one of those coins. What do you think she would do? Don't you think that she would light every light in the house and she would look under every table and under every piece of furniture and in every corner and she would tear that house apart until she finds it? And then once she finds it, don't you think that she would be so excited that she would call all of her friends and all of her family and all of her neighbors and say, hey, come celebrate with me. Let's have a party because I had lost this thing that was very valuable to me, this coin. But I found it, and that is worthy of a party. And then Jesus, again, looks them in the eyes and says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'm guessing at this point the Pharisees' faces are starting to get a little red. And at the same time, I just imagine in my mind that all of the, the sinners and the tax collectors, they're hearing Jesus say this, and they're beginning to press in. And so Jesus is like, we're going to drive this home, one more story. He says, there was a man who had two sons. Now now notice in each story, Jesus just keeps like kind of cranking it up a notch. First of all, uh, in each story, there's something that's valuable that's lost. That's a common theme in each of the story. Uh, But in the first story, it's one of a hundred. In the second story, it's one of 10. Now in this story, it's one of two. He just keeps kind of cranking it up a notch. Uh, And and, and here's the deal. I mean, they know this. I mean, uh, a lost sheep can be written off. As much as you don't want to lose a sheep, you got 99 others. A lost coin can be replaced. But a son, Jesus says, now a son. That's a totally different thing. And and most importantly, Jesus keeps cranking up uh, the moral responsibility that exists here. I mean, come on, sheep are dumb animals, right? I mean, that's what I'm told. They just kind of wander off. In fact, I was reading this last week about that, that if you're not careful, sheep, uh, you know, their, their, their main pursuit is finding green pastures to eat in, and they'll actually wander into areas that they can't get out of because there's something that is attractive to them there. And they have to be rescued. They can't even rescue themselves. And the reality is you rescue them and bring them back. They'll do the same thing again. Sheep are dumb animals and they wander off. Coins are inanimate objects. They get lost. But sons, on the other hand, sons make decisions. And, And so Jesus is cranking this up. In order to, he he wants to reveal what the heart of God is in reference to a, a particular question. And the question is this, how does God deal with rebellious, lost people? How does God deal with? rebellious people lost people what's his heart for them and so jesus says i want to i want to make sure that you understand this he says this guy has two sons and one day the youngest son came to his, comes to his father and says dad you know uh someday you're going to die and when you die some of what you have is going to be transferred to me and i've been thinking about this and i'd kind of like to have my share now Now, for, for first century Jews, this would have been an incredible insult. It, it was a blatant, in your face display of disrespect from a father to a son, uh, in, in which in their culture, you did not do. Sons re- respected their fathers. If a father wanted to uh, make that decision himself, maybe he decided, you know what, I'm going to liquidate my estate, I'm going to uh, disperse uh, my estate before my death, then he could do that of his own free will. But for a child to demand an inheritance would have been considered an outright act of rebellion from a son against a father. In fact, in that culture, in order to, or to do something like that, legally... <laughs> Would have been essentially like a son divorcing himself from the family. It would have been it would have been like him saying, You know what, give me my money. I don't want to have anything to do with y'all. Y'all are dead to me, and there would be no more contact. And so the Pharisees are here, hearing this. And in their eyes, you know, they're they're this is a bad kid. This is not a good kid. And, and, and according to Jewish law, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, according to Jewish law, when a son is rebellious like that, what the father was to do was to take this son and drag him to the city gate in front of the elders. And the elders had the right to stone this son to death in front of the rest of the people as a, as a demonstration to everybody else. Don't act like this. This is wrong. So this kid comes to his father and the father, rather than punishing his rebellious son, he responds in mercy from the very beginning, which blows the Pharisees' minds. He, he, he transfers two-thirds of his estate to his oldest son. He liquidates the rest of his estate and gives the money to the younger son. And, of course, Jesus says, you know, once the son gets this lump sum of cash, he's out of there. He takes off to a distant country where Jesus says, you know, surprise, surprise, surprise. He squanders it all on wild living. Fast cars and faster women. So now this kid, he's got nothing. He just blew through it. He's gone from the the penthouse to the outhouse, and suddenly, in in an instant in time, all of a sudden, there's this famine that hits the land. And and so, um, out of desperation, this kid needing something to eat, he gets a job for a pig farmer, the only job he can find, feeding the pigs. I'm sure when Jesus comes to this part of the story, there's probably a smirk that begins to develop on the faces of the Pharisees because, you know, first of all, when when it came to things like famines, they saw this as a a direct um, result. It was God's retribution against sin. You know, you didn't do what I told you to do, and now you're going to pay for it. And, And worse than the famine, this kid is doing what no Hebrew boy would ever be found dead doing. He finds himself in a pen With the swine. To the Jews, the pigs were uh, detestable, unclean animals. And so, again, in their minds, they're like, he's getting what he deserves. But Jesus says, in that moment in the pig pen, suddenly, this rebellious boy has a moment of clarity. Jesus says, suddenly, I love this language too, he came to his senses. Isn't it interesting how God can take even the painful circumstances in our lives and he can use them to awaken us to reality? God can take painful circumstances in our lives and he can use them to reveal our own destructive tendencies. I I love what C.S. Lewis once said about that. He said that, one of the things that pain does is it plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. <laughs> we need that sometimes. And so Jesus says, this is what's happening here. This painful experience, it awakens this young man to the truth. And here he is, he is at his rock bottom. And this kid comes to his senses and he's like, shoot, my, my father <laughs> treats his servants Better that I'm being treated here. And so Jesus says, this young man, he comes up with this plan. He says, I'm gonna go back. Let's, Let's bring some theological language into this. I'm gonna repent. Repentance is simply, I'm headed this way. I'm doing this thing. I'm gonna turn and go a different direction. And this young man says, I'm gonna go back to my father's house. And then he says, he says, um, I'm going to say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and, and I know that I don't deserve to be treated like a son, but I would settle to be a servant. That's called confession. I confess, I've blown it, I've messed up. There's this moment of honesty, repentance and confession, And so he he comes back, he repents, and he confesses. He says, I'm going to lean into my father's mercy. And let's just pick it up in verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus says, so he got up and he went to his father. To which, when the Pharisees hear this, I'm sure they're probably like, all right, now he's going to get what he deserves. I mean, we've been waiting for this moment, and he's going to get what he deserves. And the tax collectors and sinners are like, yeah, now he's probably going to get what he deserves. And Jesus looks them all in the eyes, and he says, but while this young man was still a long way off, his father saw him. He had been patiently waiting to welcome him back into the family. His father saw him and his heart was filled with compassion for him, and this father did what no distinguished Jewish man would ever do. Is he runs. We just sang about that. He runs to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, he's got his speech ready. <laughs> He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to the servant, It's like he just totally ignored what his son said. He said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, all of which were symbols of being welcomed back into the family. The the restored relationship, not as a servant but as a son. And and just like in the two previous stories, Jesus says this father is so ecstatic about his lost son returning home that he says, you know what? We need to celebrate. We need to have a party. And so he says, bring the fatted calf. In those days, they would take, and they would take a calf and put it in a pen, and they would fatten it in order to prepare it for a party. This calf had been waiting for the son. The father had been preparing for his return before the son ever came back. And so he said, bring this calf that we've been preparing for. We've been waiting to have this party for a long time. And it's finally the time. And so he says, bring the fatted calf. Why? Because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And then Jesus, in my mind, looks at both groups. And he says, Y'all, y'all get it? Do do you get it? This is how God sees people who are far from him. This is how God sees lost people. They're, They're more valuable than sheep. They're more valuable than coins. They're more valuable than, you know, when, when, when they're lost, that a shepherd would leave the valuable things out to go and find those. They're more valuable than a, than, than a coin that a widow would tear her house apart until it's found. In, in fact, they're more like lost sons who have wandered away and who the father has been patiently praying for and waiting for that day when his lost son returns, and when that happens, the father has already prepared for the celebration that's gonna take place. You know, it's interesting. I, I searched all through scripture this past week, and I couldn't find any other time where it talks about a celebration taking place in heaven. There's praise in heaven, There's worship in heaven. But but, uh, this is the only place that I can find where it talks about there is rejoicing in heaven when somebody who is lost is found. I think that's interesting because what we celebrate reveals what's most important to us. We we celebrate the important things. And, And so if you've ever wondered... What is the most important thing to Jesus? You just heard it. You don't have to look any further than Luke chapter 15. What is most important to Jesus more than anything else is lost people getting found. Hurt people getting healed. Disconnected people getting connected to him. I don't care how you say it. This is what's most important. In fact, it was so important that Jesus was willing to leave the comfort of heaven. He's a king, and he became nothing. He he was willing to leave the comfort of heaven just like the shepherd was willing to leave the 99. And the reason why was because he was on a rescue mission for you. You were the one. You were the one that Jesus left everything for and gave everything up for. Because, you see, rescuing lost people is what's most important to Jesus. We call call him Savior for a reason. And so this morning, um, that was the introduction This is a one-point message, okay? You notice I haven't had a bunch of stuff for you to write down this morning. There's only one takeaway this morning, and here it is. If finding lost people is what's most important to Jesus, then guess what? Finding lost people ought to be what's most important to us. As followers of Jesus, as people who call ourselves Christians, you know what that word Christian means, right? Uh, We get the word Christian from the Greek word Christianos, which literally means little Christs. (laughs) And and so uh, people, you know, when we talk about Christians, we're talking about little Christ, people who have the heart of Christ, who who are a reflection of Christ in the world. Little Christians, little Christ's. Or what we're called to be. This, this past week, I, um, I heard a story that I, I want to close with this morning. And uh, this is a true story. Man can come as I wrap things up. But this is a true story that took place during World War II. There was a, a, an American soldier who was captured by the Japanese. Uh, and uh, along with several other captives, he was sent to this Japanese prisoner of war camp. And uh, his captors took him and they threw him in this dark, damp, dirty cell. And and in this cell with him, they also imprisoned this Japanese man who had been captured and imprisoned because he had been helping the allied forces. And and in, in this camp, it was like so many of these types of horrible camps. The prisoners were treated cruelly, and this American soldier was regularly beaten. He was mistreated. He wasn't provided the proper nutrition. However, as badly as he was treated as an American, it was nothing compared to the treatment that this Japanese man experienced because he was considered a traitor. And so on a daily basis, these Japanese soldiers would pull this Japanese man from his cell, and they would mercilessly, hours upon hours upon hours, they would torture this man. And every day when he was thrown back into his cell, this American soldier had compassion on this man. And so he would do his best to treat the Japanese man's wounds the best he could. And He he took what little food that had been given to him and he would give it to the Japanese man in order to try and strengthen him. And and this went on day after day after day for about a month. And at the end of the month, one day, the soldiers pulled this Japanese man out of his cell and they tortured him so severely that when they threw him back in the cell, the American knew that more than likely, he's not going to make it through the night that he's, he's going to die. And all of a sudden, this thought hit this American soldier. He thought, you know what? I've done everything I can to care for this man. I've, I've dressed his wounds. I've tried to encourage him. I've shared my food. But the one thing I haven't done is share Jesus with him. And so there in the darkness of that prison cell, this American soldier knelt next to this dying Japanese prisoner of war and he whispered in his ear he said my friend I'm so sorry but your wounds are more than I can treat and more than likely you only have hours to live before you die and and, and I'm sorry I haven't done this before but before you die I'd like to introduce you to someone named Jesus who loves you who cares for you who is willing to give his life for yours And if you would just give your life to Jesus, he'll take you to live with him forever. You know know what that Japanese man said to the American? He turned his head and the weakness of death, he said, if this Jesus is anything like you, I can't wait to meet him. If this Jesus is anything like you, I can't wait to meet him. You know what, friends? I'm convinced that more than anything else, that is what Jesus wants for each and every one of us. Jesus came to seek and to save. That which was lost, which is you and me. We're we're like sons and daughters. And just like the son in this story, when we repent of our sins and we confess our sins, then we are welcomed into God's family. We are treated as sons and daughters, not servants. There's a celebration in heaven. Whenever that takes place, whenever there's a new name written down in the book of life, And then as part of God's family, we actually bear the name of Christ, little Christ, Christians. And we are called to be a reflection of Jesus, loving what he loved, doing what he did, reaching out and investing in the lives of people who don't know him yet, to the point where people might say, can you think of anything better to be said about you that if this Jesus is anything like you, I can't wait to meet him. How about we just do that? How about we just do that? Father, this morning, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. I think way too often we have a wrong view of how you see us and how you love us. The the, the reality that you loved us so much that you were willing to give up what was most precious to you in order to, to seek us and to save us. And Jesus, just the thought of the fact that you not only left the splendor, we can't even imagine what heaven is like. It's way beyond anything we can imagine, a place where um, the, the value system is such that, I mean, like gold is treated like pavement. <laughs> and you left all that. You, you willingly went to a cross and allowed yourself to be beaten and bruised and to have your hands and your feet pierced and your side pierced and to be mocked and ridiculed. And the sole reason was because you were on a rescue mission for us. We were the one that you left heaven for in order to find us. How could we not do the same thing if you did that for us? Forgive us for the times where... We make all of the things that are important to us the most important thing and at the same time set the thing that is most important to you aside and we fail to do it. Help us as a church to be the kind of people where people who don't know you just love being around us. And we love to be around them and we wait patiently And look for opportunities where we can share the same kind of love and compassion that we've experienced with other people who need to experience it just like we have. Help us to do that well. Help us to be reflections of you little Christ's living in a world that needs to experience Jesus Christ. And this morning, Lord, if there are those who are in this place or who are watching online and the truth is they've never surrendered their heart and their lives to you. This morning, Lord, your invitation to them has come. I've been waiting for you. I've been pursuing you to that central hub. And you can communicate that with us. You can communicate with Amy if you're watching online. We want to celebrate that with you. We believe that there's nothing we're celebrating more than when somebody gives their lives to Jesus. And we love doing that. And so, Brian, help us as we wrap things up.